Yes, yes, yes. You're listening to Word Spoken Podcast, the poetry podcast that brings you the best. I'm your host, Henry, and this is episode 20 of the season. So, 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 this is essentially the last episode of season one. Had to do a bit of a reshuffle um, as I was hoping to get uh, one more guest on for the last episode of the season. However, you know, due to the current events, uh, that wasn't really possible to get to get someone down, um, which is a real shame. But doesn't matter because what we've got is the episode of Word Spoken Live that was recorded at Off the Chest um, back in February. Yes, it was back in February. Um, so, brief rundown of what's going to happen. Uh, back in Feb at Off the Chest, which is a uh, monthly open mic night which um, happens in Marland, um, did a one off special um, entitled Off the Chest Goes West, and it was out in Ealing at the Questers Theatre. Um, and essentially there were three features. Um, we had Laura Ray, Jaeger and Rakaya Fatuga. Um, three incredible features uh, out the night. And then at the end of the evening, I sat down with them and asked them a couple of questions. And also we took a couple of questions from the audience as well. So if you don't know about Off The Chest, then give them a follow on Instagram. They're also on Facebook and Twitter and so on. But it's Off The underscore chest make sure you give give them a follow obviously at the moment open mics any kind of social gatherings are kind of off the cards for the minute but make sure you give them a follow because it's a really really great night um so yeah big big thanks to both ifty and ella um for putting on this amazing night back in feb uh it was a really wonderful space the Questers theater was such a pleasure to kind of have as a space um it was a great place to perform in but also just to kind of sit down and listen to some nice poetry um so yeah this is word spoken live what we're going to do is we're going to hear the three performances from each of the poets first in order and then at the end um we're going to sit down and you're going to hear the kind of conversation that we had where we get to kind of speak to the poets themselves and have a little chat about all things spoken word um so that's essentially how it's all going to go um I think we might as well just jump straight on into it, really. Not too much more that I can say, other than uh, make sure you give these poets some love, so show them some support. I hope that everyone's keeping well in this kind of very difficult, turbulent time. Um, And yeah, just hope that you enjoy this episode. We're going to kind of call this the end of season one. Um, I'm going to be putting out some kind of different episodes after this one. Um, But this is episode 20, uh, and I just want to say as well, thank you for everyone that's listening. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it so much. Um, I really, really have, and I hope everyone's well, and make sure you stay safe. So we're going to jump in and hear the intro given by Ella, followed by the feature set by Laura Ray. A little bit excited. Um, So this woman... Um, she is not only a poet, she is a creative facilitator, she's a theatre maker, she has performed at the Edinburgh Fringe, she's performed at the Latitude Festival, uh, she recently was commissioned by Apples and Snakes, um, with two other poets, to, um, devise and create a poetry show called Crowded, which toured the UK, and has now been nominated for an Offie. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. Uh, put your hands together for Laura. Ooh, Laura Ray. Yeah. Hello. 
Okay, I'm I'm really bad at adjusting microphone stands, so I'm just going to do this weird Theresa May power stance instead. Been a nightmare this microphone. Okay, um, so I actually I work here at the Questers as part of the education team, as uh, as does Ella. Ella is part of our wonderful marketing team. Uh, so we're in the office together, and in the office I mention the fact that I'm from the city of Hull about once every two days, three days. Like I, I'm always talking about Hull. So um, when I knew that I was going to get to perform here, I knew I really wanted to do a piece um, about my home city, and yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Her protests fall on the routine, numbed ears of the security. Whatever she plaintively claims, the decision remains. She is not coming in. Eyes glazed with too much drunk too quickly. Perhaps she should have been sick in the last place. She is no longer the kind of person the old White Hart pub wants. In the heart of Hull, Old Town. Tucked between banks and bars and empty buildings, begging for retail to take them up again. Silver Street. Grand name, but it's no more than an alley, really. And she navigated heels between the cobbles, wobbles, and then fell heavily where the bouncers could see. And when she falls, it's slowly. People have a good amount of time to get a look at her on the way down. One of those relaxed, oh, I seem to be falling, falls. Eyes on, then off and back again, and she is still descending, slumping. And they're very friendly, offer at once to book her a taxi but unequivocally not a word she used at the time but on reflection unequivocally (laughs) she is not coming in barred outside and that's why the sounds of merriment from within are suddenly the most tempting most cozy thing she can possibly imagine breath heavy with shots above a belly full of ear have you beer have you any idea who i am So indignant, no logical explanation to counter their interpretation of the situation. And surely there are laws about this sort of thing. And her mates are already in and they can't leave her out here. It's her hen. Can't they see her sash? Can't they see her L plates? Can't they see her crown? Having hand-scrabbled across the top of her own head, she concedes her crown may no longer be in place. But the fact remains, this is her Hindu. And what should she do now? Firm battery dead and too drunk to remember the route they'd pre-planned, she stands wobbling at the stained glass windows. None of the blurs inside seems to be hers. She's tried banging on the glass, but the bouncers were having none of that. Look, love, we've booked you a taxi. Head to the top of White Frag it'll be there. She spins the haughty drunk. This city is hers. Decision made. This unexpected turn of events just leaves her free to follow a new path. And she marches down Whitefriar Gate. Once the main freeway into the city doesn't stop until she can see the newly clean marina on her left. And to her right, the uncovered chunk of the old city wall. A few feet beneath the path. Wide gap with the wall at the bottom. Proof we've not forgotten that this is the spot where Hull famously didn't let the king in. Right, I say famously. So just before before the English Civil War, 17th century, Hull was super anti-monarchy. Charles I rides up to the gates. The city literally shuts them in his face, wouldn't let him in. We were the first place in the country to dream of doing such a thing. She unhooks the back straps of her black flats. Bare feet mean she can climb the barrier easily. Long drunk steps over the barrier, balances jumps into the crater. 
this commemoration of a famous moment and the events that happened here in the year... Well, no one can remember the year off the top of their head, can they? Although she got a B in history, actually. (laughs) They just know that this is the site. This spot saw that first act of major disobedience was really key in kick-starting the Civil War. She steps down over ancient brickwork and she sees the space, so she leans back, thinks, these are the same actual bricks as back then. She knows that the pub her mates are drinking in is the same one where they decided they wouldn't let him in. And the parallel irony drunkenly thinks, OMG, King Charles is just like me. Because nobody would let him in either. And she wonders what the king was doing 20 minutes later. What she might do, actually, is write a stern letter, question the pub's policies. Because she figures the king, he probably wrote angry letters to well-placed proprietors about this king's town that told the mounted Charles I, this city was theirs, he wasn't coming in. Gave the monarch no choice but to reverse. And he left into a sunset of unrest. But actually, what's best when rejected is to accept the consequences. Are out of your hands. So she stands, stretches and searches for a taxi. Wonders if he could hear the celebrations from up the street like she can. A police van pulls around the corner, heading towards her, then swiftly away again. Blue lights illuminate the blue plaque that commemorates Hull's greatest protest, attached to the brickwork. And she loves all the old local stories, but her taxi driver, who on arrival pulls her out of the crater carefully, is, it has to be said, less than impressed by this new perspective on historical events. His night has been filled with near misses and chances. The lads is taxi nearly hit as they stood comparing injuries. The birthday boy who nearly vomited, so he's less than excited by this revelation she climbs into the back of his taxi with. Spends her journey explaining patiently how much her and the dead King Charles I have in common. She slurs, no one knows what he did when they wouldn't let him in. Like, literally, nobody knows, which isn't true. We do know. He went to Beverly, which is this, like, local town that's really friendly to royalty. She wobbles up her front path. At last, plugs her phone back in, a flood of messages asking her where she is. Increasingly worried at the lack of reply, and one from a cousin Asking her why she left a crown on a toilet system where the cousin found it all bent and broken. And it made no sense to the cousin when the bride-to-be said, well, yeah, I lost my crown, babe. But at least I kept my head. Thank you. I'm going to do one more, and it's called Burns. The people who meet him later in life might think he's called Burns because he bets on the dice. And on darts, cards, horses, reality TV, football matches. They know that it's easy to fling your money after a chance to live like royalty, especially in Hull, his city, with this legacy of three-day millionaires, this history of earning it hard and spending it quick, of risking it all on a fishing ship. But the risks now, well, they're turned down. Jobs are harder to find than harder to keep. But Burns ain't worried, because it won't be him less struggling. He's going to be it. He's going to win. At 18, it is obvious. 
They call him Bones because of how skinny he is. Because when he's topless, she can count his ribs because of the jut of the bones of his hips. At 18, he's Lorna's, and Lorna is his. They date in that tense, relaxed, late teenage way. They called it love, but later they'd say that she needed him as much as he needed her, that she needed, he needed them as they were. Burns is most fun if you meet him on Friday. By Monday, just working and moaning and scrounging, borrowing from mates who are all sick of lending the money that they know that they should be spending and almost refusing because there's no way that they'll be seeing it again. And this week, decked in overalls, apprenticeship almost complete, Burns loiters near the sixth form to meet her and the rest of them for drinks and a catch-up. Friday night in the local pub. He waits around the corner to avoid that conversation with well-intentioned teachers who ask after his occupation who remember him as that okay kid whose future would always be hard to predict, who would drift. When Lorna emerges, there's no public display of affection. They just hold eye contact for a few seconds longer. They arrive at the pub, drape themselves over mismatched chairs, take over the pool table, sit pints, split crisps to share, talk non-stop conversations overlaying. Burns sits with them but isn't paying attention because the pull of the fruit machine is just too tempting. There's a voice in his head and it's speaking to him. He zones out of the conversation, fantasising a win, muddled with this dream of a roll of cash, forgetting that he will begin with the minimum and then end up with less and start the process off again, naively banking on success, then fail again and lose again and yell at his family to get out his stress and vent because his ventures have failed to impress. Ignore the crowded nightclub where his mates all drink and dance. He's drawn towards the corner. He's compelled to take a chance. The slot machine's in every pub. Casino minutes walk from club. An advertiser's dream. His drug is legal. So okay, a plug. The machines must have a method. So a battle of wits begin. And he's worked out this system, so he's guaranteed to win. He's watching the machine to bags it. It just in case it doesn't drop. So gets up and leaves the table for the conversation. Stops until Lorna yells, that is bullshit, babe. Machines don't remember how others have played. Will you come over here, have a drink with your mates? But Burns doesn't hear her. At least not what she says. The logic doesn't penetrate because he's too far gone and he needs to play. Back at the table, they throw down the names of universities, cities like playing cards. For Burns, it's hard. He's got nowhere to go, no way out yet. All the chat about UCAS points and loans they'll pay back once they're earning means little to him. And as the night draws itself out and the others trickle away, Lorna looks at Burns and says, this isn't working, is it, Dave? And the use of his real name shocks him into stopping and looking at her, really looking at her. She smiles at him, but there's a little warmth. Says, if I'm going to leave, we at least need to talk. Says, this place in London's accepted me. I'm going to move down south and do a degree. He wants a clever reason to make her stay, but he knows that she's brave and a decision's made. Says, they'll laugh at your accent. Nastily. And then regrets it. Yeah, she says maybe, but I've got to get out of this city. And she tries not to cry because... 
It's hard to break from a person or place that you know and you love, but you feel in your heart simply isn't enough. And she thinks, shit, this is actually happening. This is that moment that I've been dreading, anticipating something worse. Worse even than this. He stands and he moves away from her and shrugs. What do you want me to say? And she thinks, I'd have loved you for longer if life hadn't have got in the way. The only chance of something better hadn't meant that I couldn't stay. But she just smiles and downs a drink. Says to him, well, I might be skint, but I'll get us another one, shall I, babe? He just nods, rakes his pocket, looking for change, finds some coins, then turns away, back to the fruit machine, ready to play. Thank you. That was Laura Ray with an incredible performance. Um, two really, really great, great pieces. Two very long pieces, but she kind of performs them with a lot of energy and really has a great skill in telling a story with a lot of vigour. And yeah, very entertaining set. Really, really glad you came down. So the next performer we have is Jaeger. We're going to hear a brief intro by the wonderful host, Ifti, um, and then we'll head into Jaeger's set. our second feature to kick off this half. His name is Jaeger. He's from, not West, he's from East London. And he told me that he wanted to shout out about his poetry pamphlet, While I Yet Still Live. Have I got that right, Jaeger? Sorry. Oh, boy. Can you correct me? While I yet live, everybody make the loudest noise for Jaeger! It takes like an hour and a half to get here from Barking. Um, cool. Hello, hello, bonjour. Um, decent. I'm going to read six poems. Six. <laughs> this first one's called Obituary. I will die in London in the neighbourhood I grew up in outside the town hall on the high street. I will have been stabbed and my killer will look just like me so no one will look for him. My body will remain dead in daylight for hours until the sky turns more blick than blue. On the news I will be smiling. I will be as handsome as I've ever been. Today a young man has died. They will say today a young man has died today. It will be a Friday. A young man has died young, oh so terribly young. I will die again three days later. When I hand myself in, no one will believe it because I will look just like me. I will look like I have died oh so many times already. I will be survived by myself and the many times that I still have to die. (laughs) 
On my birthday, my aunties bring me gold, frankincense and sheer butter. I want to write a poem and I want everyone to like it. I don't want to stop until I've got all of the black out of my greys. A friend told me that the problem with birthdays is that you are forced to think about yourself in the third person and most people don't care. It is all a noise. Here, I imagine light drums in the background. In this poem, a loved one is almost dead and we are all in their living room watching a recording from their 50th birthday and they are dancing and I don't know what it is like to look upon oneself and be so removed. In this poem, a stranger on a train tells me to get out of this country the first chance I get. In an earlier poem, I am a boat and you are an ocean, more drums. Not understanding a prayer is no reason not to say amen. It's just noise. I remember being told that if I needed to write about love, then I never needed to actually say love. I don't think that I ever need to actually fall in love because I've already watched all of the sitcoms and the actors have already done the loving for me. I think all that I need is to start talking and to never stop. It will all just be noise, drums, louder now. In this poem, maybe it needs more drums, more drums. I want to write a poem that is partially muted on primetime television that is a group of young men dressed in black dancing aggressively on stage that is nothing but a mouth of chicken and Tennessee trading substance for melody my mother said boy I pray you don't embarrass me I want to write about disillusion and accepting and being tired and just drums Um, cool. Yeah, so I live in Dagenham and I work in Greenwich. So on my way to work, I have to go through Cannon Town. And one day, I don't know what was funny about that. Cannon <laughs> I'm sorry, I got mad aggressive for no reason. Um, <laughs> um, one day, I was almost late to work because of a very frustrating thing that Extinction Rebellion did. And there's a lot of things that they do which I find quite frustrating. And outside, there were people gathered who didn't live here. Those about whom this ain't, because they didn't know. They came with their numbers, their scripts and slogans, and they spoke their truths, and it was and is not and yet is. And they were here to save us, so we listened. They spoke of famines, pestilences, earthquakes, sea levels, fire, brimstone, disaster, death and dying. But they were too late because it had happened already. They said that there would be drought and thirsting, but we were thirsting already. They said we would go hungry, but we were starved already. The people we loved would go, but they had gone, rounded up and taken. It had happened. The world would burn, they said, but it had burnt already. I seen it on the news, in their papers, the smoke. It had happened, I swear. We would all die, they said. But what was death if not a prerequisite for resurrection? And were we not proof of glory? Were we not proof of holy? Were we not proof of funny? Were we not? But they said, this one would be different. Everyone would feel this one. 
they didn't know it hadn't happened to them so they didn't know they didn't they ran around with their charts and their tears and they were a weeping and gnashing of teeth just wanting to save but we couldn't be saved because we did know it had happened already so we did what we always do when the world ends we found home we went there closed the doors closed the curtains boarded the windows and we made food we ate with our hands and mouths open we laughed we sang loud enough to drown it all out the drowning burning weeping the wailing gnashing we waited we sang we held each other and the rains descended the flood came and the rains descended the flood came cheers during the riots in 2011 the bbc were on road asking people why they were rioting and one man said free nelson mandela in it If I could travel to any place and any time, I would go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) If I could travel to any place and any time, I would go to bed with all the strangers who got my name right and party like it was 1999 or 5 p.m. somewhere in the empire. I would drink Jesus dry. Watch me, I would. Ask for the most expensive stuff. I've already asked for so many things, so I probably wouldn't have asked. If everybody started breaking stuff, probably would have just broken stuff as well. Would have made sure that I got a big new telly. During the riots, a man on the news is heard saying, Free Nelson Mandela in it. And I bet that he would climb the prison gates himself. I bet he would try Love Winnie himself. Kiss babies, sing freedom and happy. I bet that he would. Cheers. I've got two more poems. The first is called House. Now I've got one more poem. It's not called House. It's called Gaff. It's not called Gaff. It's not called Gaff. It's called Confessions in Free Four Timing. I stole wine and toiletries. Now the newspapers have my face and I've been making playlists for crimes that I haven't committed yet just so that I'll be ready for it all. Like, just murdered a man, playlist. (laughs) Robbed a bank, now driving off cool, playlist. (laughs) Wrong place, wrong time, but he was no angel, playlist. I ate pork and fat and shellfish and consumed blood and blasphemed and mixed fabrics and broke the Sabbath and sold my name for silver coins and I boasted, I lied and I burnt down the family church and I beg, while I yet live, let me do dumb shit still. I told you I wanted my mother's tribal mark tattooed onto my stomach so it'd be like I birthed my own Africa whose lines I'd drawn myself but all that I want is to brand and be branded, I beg. I caught myself writing in okra 
And I found that the words stink of each other. I caught myself dancing that misery jazzed to rhythm and blues. All dancing shoes and mouth giddy singing empty. All niggardly hued and not quite it just right now. Now, 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 just right now. Thank you kindly. That was an incredible set by the wonderful poet Jaeger. Um, yeah, he really had a lot of humour when he was up there on, on stage. He really knew how to kind of make the audience laugh with like a little glance or a little comment. Um, yeah, really great performance from him. He has a very uh, lovely way of performing his work. He has that kind of dry, very poignant punctuation uh, in his speech. And yeah, was a really fantastic set. So yeah, really, really glad that we got to hear it. So we're going to head and hear the final one, which is Rakaya Fatuga. We're going to hear another brief intro from Ella and then we'll go straight into it. Enjoy. Um, she's a 2018 Roundhouse Slam champ. Champ. It's our second champ off the chest. Just saying. But by no means the last. Uh, um, She is also part of a poetry collective called Nan Collective. Um, She is currently a Roundhouse resident artist. She's also just a lovely, lovely person. (laughs) Um, I'm sure lots of people can vouch for that. Um, This is Rakaya Fatuga. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the night so much. It's just been a total variety of like performances. So thank you everyone who shared. Um, I'm going to jump right in. Um, this first poem is called Coconut. Green skin coconut that brims sweet water like an eye resolve to hold its tears. Green, not brown, because there is more than one stage of coconut. In Nima, I stand by the coconut cart, lips to its open eye. They don't have straws like they do in Osu, Oxford Street, a road as congested as London, Oxford Street, where a coconut is a £6.50 event, marked with a selfie, pouting African lips for the gram, a tourist experience for the city dwellers. But I'm a tourist in this city too, gulping down coconut water, drinking in every sight and sense of Accra because we only have a week this time. And if the country doesn't drip down my chin, I'm afraid I might forget where I came from. When I'm done and the cool fruit has cried down my throat, I hand the coconut back to the young man whose nose doesn't point at mine but spreads to hug his cheekbones and I say, Madasi why? Madasi, that's all. Because when it comes to tree and ewe, each apple fell a little further from the tree. From Yoruba, we have only pips, stalks, and wide eyes. 
He hacks the coconut apart, broken in three, Ghana, Nigeria, Britain. And I use one country to scoop the flesh out of another, and I eat so full, so full of coconut that I must be, and I resolve to hold its tears, so full of place, yet still irksomely hungry. Thank you. Okay. Um, I want to do five poems like Boyega. <laughs> um, so this next one is called The World Is Yours. Um, it's about borders and it's inspired by the song by Nas under the same title. She's having a car boot sale on black clouds, the kind that plume heavy and follow. So even when the sun is high, it's too dark to see tomorrow. This humbling she's selling for a dollar and a dream so kids born in affliction can choose a new theme. Some say they saw her in Nabisali, wrapped in kafiya at the foot of her house, throwing punches at a cloud in uniform, armed with rubber, metal and gas. Limbs and stones are all she has, but is not a victim. She is a witness of men grinding the earth like spices split apart, a scattered people scattering people, or kettling them to a crumb of their home, cattle herding to a corner with no space to roam. She says no. A windstorm in her fist, she cries, I was born a daughter of Palestine. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Some say they saw her in the Amazon of Ecuador, flame red across her cheeks, with Waorani women blazing through their canvas of green and brown, anything but weak while dark clouds slick as oil try mining into ancient soil to kill the landscape, matar la cultura. She will not give up land that is viva y pura. While their greed breaks through the acres, she won't stand benign. She fights, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And was that her behind a fortress of papers in London, trying to decode decades of documents and prove her grandparents' right to live in the country they grew up in and raise their kids, brought in a whirlwind with the wind rush and heady dreams to give everything to the foggy city. But hostile environments for immigrants mean they're not home in the only place they've ever truly known. Britishness given and taken away on a whim. Smog clouds in the system, but she's fighting to win. No more using and shipping away, not this time. I know this place. I know what's mine. That's her. Always making a deal with the sky on these dark clouds that plume heavy and follow. Pushing her out or closing her in at the doors. But whose world is this? The world is yours. I'm gonna do a short poem <laughs> with some audience participation. So, yay! When I say I will not be, can you say deleted? Yeah. I will not be? Deleted. Okay, that was lovely. Um, so, I wrote this poem um, for a project that was about beauty cyberbullying. So the specific type of cyberbullying when people are posting pictures of themselves, maybe experimenting with makeup, and then the comments they get forces them to sort of feel shame and take down their pictures. So this is in response to that. I will not be... Deleted. I will not be... Deleted. 
No matter how strong your hate or how intense your jealousy, I don't have time for flaming, no energy for enemies. I will not be. I will not be. Me and my tribe are more than pixels. Our beauty's too big for your screen. We're high-defined, heart-sublime, original warrior queens. I will not be. I will not be. We make swords out of eyeliner wings, slay every hate word in the DMs. We fuel up on positive things. Rumors turn to dust when we see them. I will not be. I will not be. We take the ink from insults and use it as mascara. We take bad days and bad vibes that think that they can scar us to make something new, to make something healing. It's with love and with honesty that words find their meaning. Comments can't keep me down when my future is gleaming and my heart is full of colors. I'm authentic and free, and I will never be ashamed to be me. Okay, I'm gonna. On my way here, I was trying to write a new poem, um, but didn't get there. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna write this poem in dedication to the the subject that I wanted to talk about. Because just before I left my house, um, a friend of mine said, "Oh, I'm like, I'm really sorry, and I'll always like." Um, she's really sorry to hear about the mosque attacks. And I was like, what happened? Um, but actually at my like local mosque that I go to uh, like Friday prayers at, the person who was calling the call to prayer was stabbed in the neck by someone who ran in. That was just today, this um, afternoon. Um, so this is not that poem, but this is a poem I wrote for my friend who lost her father recently. Um, and it's called Winter Blossom. Does your laughter feel like winter blossom? A fog of petals in your lungs, forcing joy a season too soon. I don't know the taste of your grief. Maybe it is a damaged earth, the world offbeat and threatening. But in this spring-colored January, you still lift your head from the nest of your elbows. Tell me to sit, pour me a drink. We break bread and spill tea and laugh like there isn't a plate at home left empty. Take all the time you need to speak with the weather inside of you. There is pollen on your fingertips from turning the seasons in your throat to prayer. To Allah yarhamu, to inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. I know we should say it's never too soon. Not for returning to light. Not when there's life and connection to celebrate. But doesn't it feel it? Doesn't it feel it? Thank you. Um, I'm gonna share one more poem. Yeah? Um, different vibe. This one is called Box. Yeah, it's called Box, that's enough. <laughs> I am the bougie plantain skewers and sweet chili dip chicks. The third generation. More lost than the second, but free enough to write poems about it. I am the girls who wear Ankara head wraps to work that dazzle Jane and Paul from HR. I'm the black girls who have never seen African soil, have never run on golden sand. The girls whose homeland is just a figment of their imagination or just the pigment in their skin. 
And I'm the girls who go back home all the time, the ones who basically live there too. The African village girls, the African city girls, the African queen of a town in Kumasi, as big as Halsden girls. I'm the natural hair movement sisters, the Bantu not flat twisters, the our hair is versatile, relax and weave, the I paid for this hair so it's mine, best believe. (laughs) I'm the don't touch my hair. I'm the whip it back and forth in my living room, hijab in the street honeys, I'm the melanin mummies, I'm the fuse and whiz kids shocky shakers, the rock and K-pop fans, the showing off but it's alright drakers, I'm the music is harams. I'm the post-colonial studies, the gotta make that money monies, the black business, black love, black girl magic, black don't crack chanters. I'm the, do I still count as black African girls? Though my parents are African, I'm British girls. I am the lost my mother tongue in a burgundy book. A Brexit softback that is changing its colors. This country changes its colors to us every season, rejecting its own children. Us apple crumble super malt sippers, us silver hoop socks and slippers, us multi-heritage, polyglot, us loud, us feisty, us sassy, us not. Us who tick black British dash African, a square smaller than a fingernail that our persons are layered into. I am just trying to pull back the skin of that like an onion to find out what's inside. This one bulb of the earth will make thousands of recipes. Thank you. Wow, amazing stuff. So we've now heard all three of the features that we had at Off the Chest Goes West. We had the incredible Laura Ray, Jaeger, followed by Rakaya Fatuga. Okay, so then... After that, um, we had a little break and then we had to a bit which we kind of call Word Spoken Live. What this essentially uh, entailed was me sitting down with the three features from the night and having a little conversation with them, asking them a couple of questions about their writing process um, and all things spoken word. And then we opened it up to the floor. So some of the people in the audience also got to ask a question. Um, so yeah, enjoy this little bit. It's kind of word spoken live. It's me in my rawest form. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It was definitely something that was kind of new, but um, definitely something I want to do more of in, in the future. But for now, have a listen to this one. Word spoken live from Off the Chess Goes West. Thank you very much, guys. Um, first of all, can I say thank you very much for coming out? Uh, this off the chest has been amazing, and I've really enjoyed being in this new space. So yeah, thank you to these guys, Ella and Ifti, for putting this on. Thank you very much. I will, I will keep this very brief. I know, uh, obviously, everyone's wanting to get home because we're in the middle of nowhere. But um, no, uh, <laughs> just joking. Uh, so guys, look, all all three of you, thank you so much for performing those pieces. Um, they were all really, really wonderful pieces, and I think you all brought something different to the night. So, yeah, can we have a round of applause for our features, please? <laughs> so, uh, I'm kind of going to go in order. So, uh, Laura, uh, I was wanting to kind of first of all ask a little bit about your writing process. So, uh, the two poems that you did for us were very much kind of storytelling in 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 form. Um, so I guess I wanted to kind of ask you, 
when it comes to your writing process, how do you approach it? Do you start start with an idea and then run with it, or how like do you do it? Uh, so when I started writing, I tried to write prose, like I was always writing prose. But uh, books are really long, and I just I'm quite a lazy person, so I would I just never. I never finished anything to a point where I was happy to to like show it to anyone. Like like editing, I don't know if any of you've tried to write like long form prose, but editing it is just awful. And if you're writing for for fun and enjoyment, obviously that's not what you want. And I sort of fell into poetry by accident. I was working for a writing charity because, um, as Ella said, I work in education. So I was working for a writing charity called the Ministry of Stories, who are in East London. There's been no love for West London at all. I'm right. I'm delighted you're here because I work in this building and I hope you all come back. Um, Because I teach and so I'm always working, so it's hard to get to East London. Um, But there were a lot of the volunteers there were involved in spoken word and involved in poetry and were like, you should come along. And so I basically adapted story ideas I had into poems Mm -hmm. because it's such a. It's such a free art form, I think. Because you can write anything and say it's a poem and like no one can can dispute that it doesn't have any laws and you can yeah it's really liberating and you can finish poems because like once you're hitting like i think the one i did earlier is seven minutes like that's kind of the you can't really do a poem longer than seven minutes it's really that's long for a poem um so yeah and i also think it's i i find it really hard to to talk about myself explicitly so I sort of hide it in characters and in situations like that because then I feel like I can I can almost do something more honest than standing there and talking about my own experiences because that's something I find really um yeah I've, I've started doing it a little bit more now but it's something I find really tricky yeah so it's if you've got a character then you can it's useful because you have that distance and you can firstly you don't have to tell the truth but also you can put parts of yourself in there without having to say that it's you Mm. yeah um so yeah if i pass the question uh over to you so um i've really enjoyed your piece about canning town with xr so do you want to um so i assume you obviously wrote that after that event is that um something that you tend to do with your writing process you kind of something happens and then you start writing um and then my second kind of question to that is um with xr there's obviously quite a lot of people and i assume you were of the similar mindset that there's been a bit of a mix-up with class in the in the in the in the debate about climate change so so maybe if you go into that afterwards after your writing process cool yeah so the poem wasn't written immediately after the thing that happened in kennetown it was written a bit before that kind of when the wave of protests were happening last summer or just before is when I had the idea for the poem. Um, So the thought process behind that was understanding that the world is burning, but also noticing that a lot of the conversations about that are amongst white middle-class people and are in a language which is to an extent unfamiliar to myself, but definitely unfamiliar to my family. So when we're like together and I say who cares about climate change, none of them care because 
the language that's been discussed in has always been one that's excluded them, whilst at the same time, in the majority, affecting those in the global south, working class, black and brown people. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so if I pass the question over to Rakaya. So um, you won the Roundhouse Poetry Slam in 2018. That, can we have a round of applause for that? Because that is very, very impressive. And uh, you also did that with the final piece that you performed for us, Box. So um, I, wanna, I just wanted uh, to ask you, what does it feel like when your name gets called out and you realise that you have won the Roundhouse Poetry Slam? Ooh. Um, yeah, it was amazing. It was... It was a shock. Um, it was really special for me because that building, um, I grew up in northwest London, which is actually really far from here. <laughs> um, even though it shares a coordinate. Um, the Roundhouse, my mom used to work there. In my teens, I worked there. Um, I would like let people in with their tickets when they went to go and see like all the big sort of music acts so it was like surreal for me to be on that stage in the first place um and then yeah to win that was just amazing wonderful for me um and so i'm kind of gonna open this up to whoever feels like answering um so what i'd want to ask is what role do you guys feel that um performing spoken word poetry has played in your life and how do you feel your lives may be not the same if you didn't do it Whoever feels up for that one. Here we go. (laughs) I think it's played a massive role. Um, I first performed at an open mic night in London when I was 17. Before that, I wanted to be a football player. I was shit. So I stopped wanting to be a football player. And performing at open mic nights going on to continue doing that, going on to study a master's in poetry has given me something to do in life which I love and which I believe I'm good at. Oh, cool. Um, do you want to answer the question? Um, what was the question again? What has it given what, me? Well, I guess, what role do you feel spoken, uh, performing spoken word has played in your life and how do you feel your life may have changed if you hadn't have gotten in, in, into it? Um, I think it's sort of helped me to sort of explore another side to myself um, because I'm a very like quiet person. People who know me through my family think I actually don't speak at all. <laughs> so <laughs> when I like won the competition, for example, because I was performing before that, but... Um, the aunties don't hear about just <laughs> random performance, but they hear about the competition and they're like, oh my gosh, you do, you know, you do poetry, you can, you can speak, you can, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's allowed me to sort of explore a more creative performance side of myself, which I suppose I was exploring anyway, but um, poetry is just a great medium for conversation, exploring ideas. So yeah, I love it. And pass that question over to Lord. I think... For me, it was really nice to be able to perform in my accent because, like, I've done a lot of theatre stuff in the past and there just aren't, there aren't characters with this voice and I can't hide it. I always sound like a character from Hull. Um, so it was really liberating to be able to write for my own voice and sort of use it and exaggerate it. That was something that I think 
that was really cool. But I do think I wouldn't have gotten spoken word if I hadn't been in London. I think it's not... The spoken word scene in London is incomparable to what's happening in... I don't want to speak for everywhere outside London, but in a lot of places I've lived up north, it's just not a thing. It's not a... Poetry isn't a working class activity. Um, And so, yeah, I feel lucky that I moved to a city where it's such a... Yeah, it's just really accessible in London and you don't feel silly doing it. Although I did feel silly when I went back home and told people I'd started doing poetry. Because it's not, it's just, yeah, it's not a thing anyone I've grown up with does. So, yeah. (laughs) Great. So um, my final question before I open it up to the floor to a couple of questions in the audience is, so all three of you guys have done very well in your career so far. You're now featuring at nights. Very well done. Um, so my question is to any, um, what advice would you give to anyone that's starting out? Maybe that has, have only done it a couple of times or maybe have written a lot and haven't performed yet. What advice would you give them in terms of advancing their career in spoken word? Open to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I think as has just been mentioned, it is quite accessible in London particularly go to nights read at libraries if not able to purchase books willy-nilly and then I think that advice that I would give to myself that I would give to people interested in poetry and I would give to audiences who are interested in poetry is to value pain and suffering less than we currently do I would agree, like, just consume everything, like, watch other performers read, like, everything, read poetry, read prose, read the papers. Um, But also, like, work out what your unique take on it is. There's no point in saying something that's already already being said by other people. Like, you have a unique perspective on certain subjects, so find those subjects that you care about and find what you have to say about it and say it in your voice. So, like, be inspired by other artists but don't ever try and imitate them because they're already doing their thing so like work out what it is that you offer and then offer it and then finally over to Rekha yeah um I would say you'll have a lot of friends who will tell you that everything you write is amazing um but you should find that friend not who just wants to like be mean for no reason but Someone whose work you respect, maybe they're a poet as well, um, or a good writer, and ask them for um, critiques of your work and how you can make like each poem better, because editing is like such a, such a good skill to practice. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that is a really good point. I think it's something that often we on the scene, everyone's very supportive of one another, and in a way, that's what makes the scene so, so great. Um, but yeah, that is maybe the downside of it. So yeah, I think they're really good points. Okay, so can we open it up to the ground? Uh, to, the, to the ground? To the crowd. Does anyone have any questions? The guy in the purple tie has a question. Um, it's a question for all of you. Um, so just say the question again. That question was, how do you pick the, uh, set, the set list for your first kind of features? How do you choose which poems you, you, you perform? Do you do that based on the night or do you do it uh, prior to the evening? I have, like, a few go-to poems that I just always do. 
Um, but then I do also sort of choose on the night depending on like the crowd and what's been said already. Sometimes if poems can like speak to what's already been said, so it's like joining in the conversation, then I like to do that. Yeah, kind of. The, so because mine are all so long, I can only ever do like two. Um, but it's kind of a similar thing. You sort of try to read the. If you're not like, if you're ever the very first performer, like a, the, the first open mic or anything like that at night, it's it's really nerve wracking. I find because you've not had any chance to sort of read the room a little bit. So you kind of read the room slightly and have like your options ready. But also, I think just check in with yourself. Like it depends what kind of mood you're in. If you've got a more playful piece and you're feeling like that's what you want to perform or like I've got a couple of pieces which you know I wrote when I wasn't in the best place and I'm not always prepared to like I probably wouldn't do that if I was featuring a night I'd never been to before for example so like just yeah like check in with yourself and work out what you're going to enjoy performing the most because if you're enjoying yourself then people are going to go along with it I think that's one of the most important things for me enjoying yourself similarly I have go-to poems but I don't think I would necessarily enjoy it if at every night I was reading the same poems and so then again read the room if I look in the room and it looks like there are Nigerians in the room I'm gonna read specific poems because I know that there are references that they would get and I appreciate that getting of it yeah. Okay, okay, so we're going to have one more question. I'm sorry, because we're really conscious of time here. So is there another question in the audience for one of the features? Cool. Danny? Hi, um, how do you think we... Because poetry at the moment is quite a, a condensed scene. How do you think we open up? So, so just say that question again. So that was how do we open up the scene to involve more people in it? I think one of the main and obvious tools that would maybe come to our minds is the internet and the power that the internet has. And I know that in the past, I may have been snobbish about certain poems that I've seen on the internet or many people close to me or friends with me have been snobbish about that. And I think that I no longer feel comfortable with criticising things which make poetry more accessible, which is what... I think we should all be trying to do. Um, so for me, it's quite a biased answer because this is what I do for a living. But I think it's about making sure there are creative opportunities for people who wouldn't traditionally have access to the arts. And I think for spoken word, for me in particular, it's trying to get to women's organisations because they do tend to be quite boy-heavy uh, spoken word events and um, yeah it's about have in creative workshops what you're trying to do is go to a group and create a really relaxed and open way for them to just start creating stuff and sharing it almost by accident and as soon as you can do that in a room with like you were saying like earlier on when we were talking about Pitsanger Poets as soon as you can do that in a room with 10 people you've got stuff and you've had that feedback and you've had that trusted feedback which is the the key thing about what you were saying where it's like you you can develop from that feedback um but yeah for me it's about like outreach essentially it's about making sure there are workshop opportunities for people who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves poets 
because there are always going to be people who are like, well, yeah, it's not really for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, following on from those answers, I think um, opening up to different communities in a way that you're um, catering for their their needs and their um, what they're used to. Um, so, little plug, I'm hosting two open mic nights. Um, one is called Cave Open Mic, which is, they're both in northwest London. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, not easy. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, Cave Open Mic is is open to everyone, but it's a very sort of living room space. It's like shoes off. We sit on the carpet. There's cushions. Um, it's also like an alcohol free zone, kid friendly. So it's like it's really welcoming in, like a sort of family vibe. Um, and then at the Hearth, which is a women's centre, um, we're starting with an International Women's Day Eve party slash open mic night. Um, <laughs> so that's going to be on the 7th of March. That's going to be our first event together. But that is um, only women. So it's, yeah, it's literally for anyone who wants to share and things that they might want to share in a, in a safe space um, with other women. Okay, well, that sounds like a lovely event. So, yeah, uh, we're going to wrap up, guys, because I'm conscious of uh, time here. So, yeah, I just want to say a massive thank you to our three features this evening. They've done a tremendous job. Thank you very much. Also, thank you to Ella and Ifdi for hosting this evening. Um, we will see you all, guys, at the next Off the Chest. Thank you, guys, for coming. Cheers. There we have it. That was Word Spoken Live. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. It was a bit of a, of a different format to what you would be used to if you're a regular listener of the show. Um, but it was something I personally really did enjoy on the night. Um, and I think it kind of allowed us to get a chance to bring the kind of vibe you get at an open mic onto the podcast. So um, I really hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Um, so yeah, that is a wrap, guys. That is season one. Um, there's been 20 episodes and this is the 20th one call it season one um, but yeah I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone that has been supporting and following the show honestly it's something that I've enjoyed so much um, I've got big 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 plans for season two as to where we can kind of take this platform and how we can grow it um, so definitely stay tuned for that as I said we're not going to have a break in terms of putting out content I've got loads of different things coming up one of them is a swap cast with a um, podcast in the US called Pen Click, which is going to be a lot of fun. So I'm going to put that one out soon. I've also got a kind of season one catch up episode, which I've recorded with A's. So A's is the poet that helped me start this whole thing off by recording the very first episode with me. And what we're going to do is sit down and go through each of the episodes so far, hear one of the poems from them. Um, and speak about the poet and also some of the issues and themes raised in their work. So it's going to be like a recap episode. So that will be coming up, plus plenty of other little ideas in the pipeline, but I won't give too much away. So yeah, thank you for the, for the support. Thank you for listening. Word Spoken Podcast on Instagram. Tell your mates. Oh, also, one more thing. If you could possibly, if you're listening to this on Apple or any other medium as such, give it a little review would you i would be so grateful 
Um, if you're if you're looking to give anything less than five stars, uh, you can not do it. That's fine. Don't worry about it. But if you're uh, wanting to give a little five stars, I would be really really grateful. It really helps with the kind of podcast charts and ev- and everything. So if you have been a listener of the show and you really really like it, please do um, do that. It would really help me greatly. So yeah, just want to say thank you very much. This has been season one. I'm your host Henry. Ciao.